their elementary schools, high schools, junior high, colleges, but they've gotten off base. But I'll tell you a story here in just a little bit that's centered for me personally around Colossians chapter 1 and the portion of study that we have before us this morning because it changed my life and it changed the life of somebody who did have a doctorate degree in advanced nuclear particle physics. God's still out there changing lives. Now, let, I'd like to draw your attention, first of all, to verse 15 of Colossians chapter 1. Because the first thing that Paul wants to address, once he had heard this false teaching was out there that diminished the work and person of Jesus Christ, he said, okay, let's start there. Nuclear particle physics, that's coming. But let's start with Jesus, because if you don't have a handle on him, it doesn't matter what else you do have a handle on. Jesus is the Son of God. Just say amen. He's risen from the dead. He's paid the price for our sins. He's coming again. These things are the staples of Christian belief today. They should be something that provides a rock-solid foundation to your life. If you have any other foundation in your life but Jesus Christ, it's quicksand. Be careful of that. Change. So what verses 15 through 20 do of Colossians chapter 1, it really exalts Jesus Christ versus this Colossian heresy that deprecated and marginalized Jesus Christ. Today, there are any number of religions that would be glad to provide you religion without Jesus. Jesus didn't die to give us religion. He died to give us life, life eternal. But that begins here and now. It should change the way I see the world in which I live. Hebrews 1.3 says, The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation. Think laser photocopy. He is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of His being sustaining all things by his powerful word. It is a fascinating Greek word that is used of the exact representation of God. The Greek word is, believe it or not, character. Character. He is one with the character, the nature, the essence of Almighty God. 100%. Jesus is God. When they picked up stones one time to, to stone him, they said, well, you, a mere man, claim to be God. And Jesus said, I am. <laughs> that settled all arguments. The voice that spoke from the burning bush to Moses, the great I am, Jesus equated himself with. Well, that's in total harmony with Scripture. The, the character of Jesus. What kind of character do you have? That's where we get our modern-day usage of that term. But in Greek language, it means something far deeper than the quality of the essence of your personality. I want to be a representative of Jesus Christ. I know sinful fallen flesh keeps me from being an exact representative of Jesus Christ, but I want my character to reflect His. Don't you? I want my speech to reflect his. I want my heart to reflect his. And if there is something that's getting in the way of that process in your heart and life today, something that is compromised in your character, it would be a great day to forsake that. Confess it as sin. Ask Jesus to forgive you. 
give you a new character that is more representative of the Savior that you serve. Hebrews goes on. It is a, that's an amazing book all by itself. But continuing from verse 3, And after Jesus had provided purifications for sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. The original Greek word character, it, it, it properly it symbolized an engraving, an exact representation or likeness, which also reflects the inner character. It was used of the die that would drop and make a coin, and then another coin, and another coin. They make them exactly the same as the die itself. It was a term used for that tool that was used in that engraving process. It means, it came to mean a die, a mold. It's an exact representation. That's what Jesus is. In fact, Jesus in the gospel said, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. Wow, what was he referring to? His character. He was the exact imprint, the impress of our Heavenly Father, the one who created the universe. He was the stamp. He was, had the impress of God upon him like you would a coin. But it always conveyed the reality behind the image. God exists. He is unseen, but Jesus was seen. I hear that question all the time from atheists, and I think that's an interesting position. An atheist, by definition, the word means a, theos in Greek. No God. How do you prove that exactly? I've asked every atheist I ever met, you say there is no God, prove it. Prove it. They can't. They cannot prove it. But dogmatically, they say there is no God. I'm an atheist. I don't believe in God. Well, that's convenient if you prefer your sin, isn't it? But the fact of the matter is, God exists. How do I know that? He sent his son, who had 100% of his father's character in him, so much so that he could say, if you've seen me, Jesus said, you've seen the father. So now every atheist on the planet is without excuse. There is a God. Well, I'm not sure Jesus is a, is a historical person. Have you ever in your life picked up an encyclopedia? Look up Jesus Christ. He is a person of history attested to by Jewish sources that hated him, but he's attested by them. He's attested to by Roman sources as well as Christians. One. If you, if you ignore the historicity of the person of Jesus Christ, then you can't believe that George Washington was our first president. We have historical evidence of that. So Jesus is real. You may not be prepared to deal with that, but then that's to put on the back burner your decision to accept or reject God. That's what's at stake. When we talk about the deity of Jesus Christ, if he is not God, then he died on the cross for nothing. He had to be perfect to die for the sins of an imperfect people. He is God. Do you remember his resurrection? Jesus showed up in, after his resurrection from the dead to his disciples, but one of them named Thomas was missing. And the other disciples, were, they were excited. They saw Jesus. They saw Jesus. They held on to him. They hugged him, I, I'm sure. And they told Thomas later, man, you missed, you missed a Sunday. You really missed it. You should have been here, Thomas. And Thomas said something that borders on arrogant. He said, I will not believe. He didn't say I could not believe. He said, I will 
not believe. Unless I put my finger in the nail prints in his hand and thrust my hand into the spear wound in his side, I will not believe. It's not that he could not believe. He chose not to. There's a lot of people out there that make that same choice today. A week later, Jesus shows up. And it is an amazing response that we hear out of Thomas this time. First thing he said is as he fell on his face before the living Lord Jesus Christ, he said, my Lord and my God. Now, if Jesus weren't God, he would have said, oh, no, 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 Thomas, get up off your feet. I'm just a man. Well, that's what these false teachers were saying. He was just a man. Used by God greatly, a fine teacher, a great philosopher, but they had deprecated the work and person of Jesus Christ. But Jesus, he couldn't be a good man if he was willing to accept worship from one of his own disciples when, in fact, he was not God. Jesus did not correct Thomas when Thomas said, you are my Lord and my God. That's been the confession of every Christian since. Jesus is God. So Paul elevates him up above the standard of, of these heretical teachers. Hebrews 1 and 3 reminds us of that. It's interesting that the early church fathers, the first four or five centuries of the church's existence, used this word character and interpreted it the ultimate radiance of God. The ultimate radiance, the supreme radiant glory, the majestic splendor of Christ showing His glory as the second person of the eternal Godhead, second person of the Trinity. Jesus had to come in the flesh because it's difficult for you and I to believe in something we can't see. One day, my uncle, when I was going to engineering school in the City University of New York back in 1970, my uncle, who was an ordained minister in the uh, Assembly of God Church in Florida, excuse me, an ordained deacon, uh, came up to visit me and he said, Jimmy, I'm, I'm here to tell you about Jesus. I said, I thought you were here to buy me lunch in the cafeteria. <laughs> well, he did that as well. But when we sat down together, he says, let me tell you about Jesus. And I said, can I just stop right there, Uncle Bill? I love you with all of my heart. But I'm an engineer. I'm in engineering school. I'm taking nuclear physics and particle theory. So you're, if you're here to tell me about something I can't see, feel, taste, touch, or smell, you're on the wrong foot. Engineers only believe in the stuff that's real. If you can't see it, feel it, taste it, touch it, or smell it, it's not real. I was an arrogant 17-year-old when I first started college. And my uncle said, well, Jimmy, do you believe in atoms? And I said, yeah, of course I do. He said, do you believe in protons, neutrons? Do you believe in orbiting electrons around them? I said, of course, I believe in all of those things. And he says, really? Have you seen any? With your own eyes, have you seen any? Well, you can't see them, not even with a scanning electron microscope. You can't see on that level. Can't see down that far. And he says, so you believe it because somebody else told you to believe it, not because you know whether it's real or not. You just believe it. And you're dogmatically believing in something you can't see, feel, taste, touch, or smell. He just nailed me to the wall with my own hypocrisy. I hated it. But then he brought up another example. He said, well, about, how about gravity? 
What's it look like? You can't see it, feel it, taste, touch, or smell it? That's for sure you can. Drop a bowling ball off a skyscraper, it hits the pavement. I can see gravity. He said, no, 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 no. You're seeing the effects of gravity. You can't see gravity. You can't taste, touch it, or smell it. But you, you believe in gravity, don't you, Jimmy? He had me again. I hated it. And he says, but the God who is just as invisible as the things that you believe in, you've chosen not to believe in, but you believe these other things, and you have no evidence as to their reality. But God sent his own son, Jesus Christ, and he just opened up the Bible to me. And he showed me Jesus is real. God is real. Jesus was constantly talking about his heavenly Father. He said, if you don't believe my testimony about the Father, believe at least for the work's sake. He was doing miracles all over the place. And I started, my uncle planted some seeds there that grew up about a year and a half later when I accepted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. But I was impressed and I had no answers. In fact, the schooling that I was getting provided no answers to spiritual reality. I could go to this school library and I could look up Jesus Christ. In fact, I did in every encyclopedia in the City University of New York. And all of those entries treated him like a man of history. I couldn't argue with that. So God showed up in the human race. I couldn't argue with that. That was incontrovertible evidence. Colossians now tells us something about that man named Jesus who was more than a man, more than a carpenter. He was the Son of God. That's what saved my life when I had no answers. He goes on to say in verse 15 that he, Jesus, is the image, the likeness, the icon, if you will, that's the Greek term, which means a statue, a profile, a representation, a resemblance, a, a copy, but an exact copy of the original. Uh, it comes from the root word iko, which means to be like. It's a, it's a mirror-like representation. That's why Jesus could say, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. It's a mirror image, identical in resemblance. In, in one of my engineering pursuits, I was, I was fascinated a number of years back when they came out with 3D printers that were able to stack plastics together and actually create three-dimensional objects from very expensive printers. I thought, that's marvelous technology. But now they've moved beyond that. Today, they've, they've, they've got something called direct metal laser sintering. And I used to work with sintered metals as an engineer, and they're, they, under a microscope, they look like little BBs, and the sintering process gets just enough BBs to link up with each other to provide a metallic structure, but that is porous. In fact, that's where battery plate technology comes from. It has to be porous as the electron transfer takes place through the pores in that centered metal. Fascinating. What, what does that have to do with anything? Well, that's the kind of representation Jesus is of the Father. He's a 3D laser printed model of his heavenly Father. I think that is phenomenal. More than just a, a picture or a representation of Jesus Christ, more than a statue or an image, he is the exact duplicate, if you will, of the Father. Christ is the very image, the icon, the supreme expression of the Godhead. And throughout Paul's writings, you find that consistently stated as fact throughout the, the New Testament. Uh, when you talk about an icon, 
an icon is how the original is pronounced, it assumes a prototype. It assumes that it is made after something which was original, which would be the Father in heaven. Not a mere resemblance, but that which is drawn from. It's more than a shadow. It's a 3D representation of the original. Jesus is God in flesh. And that's, that's how we treat heretical teaching that deprecates the person of Jesus Christ. You'll hear the critics say that all the time. Oh, he's just a man. Oh, he's just a philosopher. Oh, he was just a, an ancient teacher. He was just one rabbi among many. No, he's the son of God who rose from the dead. Name me another philosopher who did that. Name me another good teacher that did that. Buddha didn't do that. Muhammad didn't do that. Confucius didn't do that. Jesus did. Jesus did. Of all of the major, there's only four major religions in the world that are based upon persons rather than philosophical presuppositions. And of those four major religions, only one claimed to be the Son of God. Only one did miracles and proved to do miracles time after time after time. Only one died for the sins of the world, hung on a cross, and rose from the dead. So why in the world does the world believe in these other three jabronis? They're deceived. How do we set them free? Jesus. The Gideons get the Word of God out, and the Word of God changes lives. It's as simple as that. That's why I believe in the Gideons, because I believe in what God has done in and through His Word down through countless generations since the originals were written. I hope you're in the Word of God regularly and that you're letting it change you. What God wants to do when you open a book is change your character. I know some of you really well. I'm here to tell you, you are really characters. If I were to use that in the biblical sense, though, what you really need is to get your character out of the way so His character can shine through you. And that happens every time you open the Word. That happens every time you worship. That happens every time you seek His face in prayer. That image is impressed upon you. And every day you're in this, that image gets deeper and deeper and deeper. The Word of God, it searches out the heart. It cleaves it right down to the level of the bones and the marrow, Scripture tells us. Sharper than a two-edged sword. Philippians 2 verse 5 puts it this way. Your attitude, yours and mine, should be the same as that of Jesus Christ. Why? Because His was of His Father's who being in very nature, the very form, the Greek word is morphe, where we get the word metamorphosis. To see him is to see the Father, the same form, shape, outward appearance, same nature. He, although being in very nature, God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he made of himself nothing. In other words, no pride, no arrogance, no thinking he was all that. That's called humility, isn't it? You and I need to be more humble. You think something is, that's your wheelhouse? No, it's not. Of all that can be known in the universe, of that which you're best at, what percentage do you know? One millionth of one percent. So what do you have to be proud and arrogant about? That's your wheelhouse? No, it ain't. Not even close. Got a PhD in it? You're still not even close. Of all that can be known in the material universe about the subject you claim to be best at, stop with the bragging. 
No pride. Jesus said, you want to be something in the kingdom of God, be a servant. Be a servant. You know, servants, uh, the Greek term doulos means slave. They weren't paid. I'm impressed by the fact that the Gideons aren't paid. They present the gospel of Jesus Christ just because the Spirit of Christ moves in them to do so. Any pastor worth his salt isn't in ministry for what he makes. For the first three and a half years of this ministry, I didn't take a penny from the church. In fact, I had to tithe most of what I was making in the secular place just to pay the utilities and rent in the church that we were renting. You have to make those sacrifices. That's what it means to take on the very nature of a servant like Jesus did, who being made in human likeness, Philippians continues, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself. Say, humbled himself. That's your homework. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord, and He will lift you up. Isn't that glorious? And He became obedient unto death, even death on a cross. Therefore, because of His humility, His obedience, His accurate representation of His heavenly Father, therefore God exalted Him to the highest place and gave Him a name that is above every name. And someday, at the name of Jesus, every knee is going to bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue confess. Here's the fact. Jesus Christ is Lord. To the glory of God the Father. You say, well, I don't believe that. Who cares what you believe? I care what's real. He is the Son of God. Deal with it, Mushmelon. You've just got to say, that's fact. He's the Son of God. It doesn't matter what you believe. Hebrews 1.3 says the sun is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of His being, sustaining all things by His powerful Word. There's character at, at the root of that verb again, the exact representation, excuse me, the noun, exact representation, character. John 14.9 says, Jesus, this, this is so powerful to me, the one who has seen me has seen the Father. Jesus said, you can apply that to his statements about his eternality. <laughs> I remember one time in John chapter 8, Jesus told his critics, I tell you the truth, before uh, Abraham was born, I am. He just equated himself with the voice that spoke to Moses out of the burning bush who said, I am that I am. It's a statement of eternality. He's always been, is now, and always will be. I am. Not I'm going to be, or I was, or I will be. I am. It covers all of those bases. And at this, <laughs> in John's account, they understand exactly what's being said. Jesus just claimed to be God. And at this, they picked up stones to stone him. Why? Because that's the penalty for blasphemy. It's not blasphemy if it's true. Jesus is God. But Jesus hid himself from them, slipping away from the temple grounds. <laughs> Remember Jesus praying in John 17, And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world began. Jesus was there. Jesus was there. In Revelation 22, the Lord declares, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and last. Alpha and Omega being the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet. 
Paul would remind the Corinthian believers in 1 Corinthians 8, for even if there are so-called gods, idols, false religious systems, whether in heaven and on earth, as indeed there are many, quote, gods and many lords, things that are worshipped on earth, yet for us there is but one God, the Father from whom all things come and for whom we live. But there is one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. This guy, Jesus, Paul is sharing with the believers at Colossae is a singular and unique individual, and you cannot compare him with any other religious figure ever known to man. He is in a singular category of divinity that none other possess. Going back to Colossians 1 and verse 16, for by him all things were created by Jesus. All things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, that means atoms and protons and neutrons and little electrons zipping around the outside. Whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities on earth, in heaven, under the earth, all things were created by him and for him. Oh, my, my, my. Verse 15 describes him not only as the image of the invisible God, but the firstborn over all creation. Stop right there. The word firstborn, prototokos, refers to priority of position, not creation. The meaning is clear in Psalm 89 where God said, I will also appoint him my firstborn, the most exalted of the kings of the earth. Parallel passage in John 1 and verse 1. You know that passage well. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. John chapter 1 asserts that all of Scripture asserts the divinity of Jesus Christ. He was there in the beginning. He is the agent that God used. There's no contradiction between Colossians 1 and Genesis chapter 1 where it says in Genesis 1, in the beginning God created heavens and the earth, but here it says Jesus did. Well, if you believe Jesus is God, you don't have any problem with that at all. God created. Okay. But Jesus was the agent that God used to facilitate his creation. Jesus was that agent, the assertion that he, as the eternal son, he holds this position according to this word that is interpreted firstborn in Colossians. He was before all things. He has priority because he was before all things, and all things were created by him. He created everything, verse 6 says. And verse 17 is an astounding statement of, of his creative abilities. In fact, the permanence of this universe rests more on the shoulders of Jesus Christ than it does the understanding of nuclear particle physics. It's a Christocentric universe that we are a part of. The permanence of this universe rests a lot more on Christ than it does the laws of physics that he created. And someday we'll bring to an end. He is the angel of the Lord, but that takes us into a study in Genesis that would take hours all by itself. But did you notice verse 16? He has priority over all things because he was before all things and he created all things. Why should be the question that comes first to mind. Look at the end of verse 16. All things were created by him and 
for him. That's why you exist. You were created by him. You exist because he has purposes in store for you. You may not be fully aware of them yet. You've probably been distracted a good part of your life when God was patiently waiting for you to get your act together and become a Christian so he could use you for his glory. We spend an endless amount of time in selfish pursuits, living for me. Oh, I like this. Oh, I'm really good at that. Oh, I want to be famous here or there. Wasted lives. Wasted lives. Instead, we are to be, because we've been made by him, we should be living, verse 16, for him. Where do you get your sense of self-worth and identity from? What you do, how much you make, your hobbies, what you're good at, your youth. Can I tell you, all of those things disappear with age? Especially the good looks, the things that we once... we thought, we thought we're exceptional. <laughs> After 50, everybody's shaking their head and going, boy, you were fooled. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Jesus was God's appointed agent, and the purpose of creation is to acknowledge the one true living God. God did not put you here so you could sock away a lot of money and make a name for yourself or indulge your flesh. Or partake in the endless, endless entertainments of this world in self-indulgence or technology. The latest God we serve in America is technology. Oh, I can't live without my cell phone. Please tell me that half of all of the accidents that are caused out there are from distracted driving. They're looking at their cell phones. Half of all accidents? You're killing people because you can't wait to see what somebody tweeted? Are you kidding me? You go to jail for things like that, for being so preoccupied with minutia. Well, nobody thinks it is more minute and worthless than God himself. And yet we feel like we can't live without these things. I can't live without TV. I can't live without X, Y, or Z. And yet all of these things in the time of Christ did not exist. We chase after endless distraction and entertainment today. And here is the worst sin of all. The average Christian feels there's nothing wrong with that. We live in an age where the average Christian, the average pew sitter says, big deal I don't read my Bible. Big deal I don't pray. Big deal I spend eight hours a day on my phone or my computer. Big deal that I pursue all of these endless pursuits and I have no time for God. Don't read His Word. Don't serve. But I'm a Christian. I'm okay. I doubt if you're a Christian, and I, I know you're not okay. Christ wants to be everything in your life. If he's not, can you tell me why? You got something better? You're chasing after something that has more eternal value to it? Tell me that. Tell me that. But don't think you're okay with one foot in the world and one foot in the kingdom of God. Jesus said that defines the lukewarm church. And Jesus said, if you don't change in Revelation 3, I will literally, can I give you a little Greek? I will vomit you out of my mouth. I don't know what that means, but that doesn't sound good. You want to be a part of Jesus vomiting you out of his mouth? Then don't be a lukewarm Christian. Don't be a compromised Christian. 
You are not of this world. You are in this world, yes, but not of this world. Your citizenship is in heaven. Act like it. Live like it. Talk like it. Verse 17, he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. That is a powerful, powerful passage. Jesus is before all things. That's one of the attributes of divinity. He is eternal. He wasn't created. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. I want to put you in a time capsule, and I want to take you back to the University of Colorado at Colorado Springs in a second semester physics class that I sat in in 1983. Now, we had just learned in first semester physics that by nature, things on an atomic level <clears throat> that like charges repel. They fly apart. You get two positive charges, they try. You've experienced this with a magnet where the opposite poles attract, are attracted to each other, but if you try to put two positive poles together, there's a real force of electromagnetism that keeps them apart. You're familiar with that concept. But we were studying uh, in this physics class at UCCS, and I had the privilege of sitting under the uh, head of the department at University of Colorado, Colorado Springs. His name was Dr. Levinson, a Jewish man but not a believer. Didn't believe in God. We had just been studying the new nuclear particle physics, uh, particularly of uranium, which has an atomic number 92, and plutonium 94. What that means is that in uranium, there are 92 positively charged protons in the middle of a singular atom of that. But all of those 92 protons have a positive charge. So I raised my hand in class and I said, Dr. Levinson, you told us last semester that like charges repel. I said, how do you explain 92 all positively charged protons hanging out together in the middle of that stable uranium atom? Why don't they fly apart? I said, it can't be the neutrons inside. There's 92 neutrons, but they possess no electrical charge at all. It can't be the orbiting electrons because they do not possess sufficient mass to counteract the protons in the middle of it. How do they stay together in a stable uranium atom, Dr. Levinson? This is a guy with a PhD in nuclear particle physics. Do you know what his answer was? I don't know. I said, the Bible tells us. And I opened it up to Colossians chapter 1 and verse 17. By Jesus Christ, all things hold together. It is Jesus Christ himself who created every atom in the universe. Understand why we use plutonium now? It makes a bigger bang than uranium. Because to create an atomic explosion, at least a fission reaction, you have to split that uranium or plutonium atom in the middle, and all of those then positive charges fly apart. And the force that is exerted in a nuclear explosion is the same force that it takes to hold all of those things together. The same force. So we have, when we split, when, 
we decided we knew how to play creator, and we first split the atom. We saw things make a really loud noise when you have an atomic explosion. And it's because we learned that these materials are fissile. You can split them, and the more atoms, the more protons that you have in the center of that atom, the more energy is released. Plain, simple, nuclear physics. But a PhD at the University of Colorado, Colorado Springs, a man who said, this is my wheelhouse, this is my... This is what I'm an expert at. I have doctoral degrees in advanced nuclear particle theory and physics. He couldn't explain what the Bible explains for us here at the hands of a Jewish scholar named Paul 2,000 years ago. This Bible is more up-to-date than tomorrow's newspaper. Do you understand that? God has this God. He's figured this out past, present, and future. That's why you and I have absolutely nothing to worry about. God has this. He holds all things together. Someday he will let go. I want you to take a read, which we're about to put on the screen, 2 Peter chapter 3, because a simple fisherman is about to give, give us another lesson in nuclear particle physics. He's a fisherman. He doesn't have any advanced degrees. He doesn't have any degrees at all. But he knows fish. God allows him a peek into the future. 2 Peter 3.10, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar, and the elements, say elements, that's nuclear particle physics, the very elements, the single atoms. Someday, because Jesus has been holding them all together, someday he's going to let go. The very elements will be destroyed by fire. The only way, the only way you can destroy an element is through nuclear fission. You split that atom, and when you do, you get a thermonuclear reaction out of that. The very elements, Peter says, he doesn't know anything about physics, but God has revealed this to him. The elements will someday, the very elemental structure of our universe will be destroyed by fire and the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. Now, here's the kicker, verse 11. Since everything will be destroyed by this way, <clears throat> what kind of people ought you to be? I love Peter. If you know that every single thing you cherish in this life, except for the souls of those that know Jesus, is not going to be in heaven with you. Someday, it'll all disappear. It's going to burn. Have you ever seen anybody go to a funeral and be buried with a U-Haul so they could take it with them? You can take nothing with you. You can take nothing with you. You came into this world toothless, hairless, and no clothes. You leave the same way. Only you can't see either when you're on your way out. But in light of all of this, in light that your house is going to burn, your car's going to burn, all of your toys, all of your acquisitions, all of your bank accounts, it's all going away. What kind of people ought you to be? You ought to have better priorities. <laughs> that's, what, that's what Peter is reminding us of. What are you living for? What are you living for? What really gets your attention? What jazzes you? Are you going to go to heaven saying, boy, I wish I'd watched one more episode of Seinfeld? Wish I'd worked harder at work? You think you're going to be saying that when you're standing before the throne of God? Oh, wish I'd had more toys. Wish I could have brought my motorcycle and my guitars up here with me. 
how foolish that sounds coming off my lips. The things that we live for in this world, the things that we chase after in this world. And Peter says, come on, grow up. Think maturely as Christians. What kind of people ought you to be? As if we needed to answer that rhetorical question, he answers it for us. You ought to live holy and godly lives. The root word holy means separated, separated from the things of this world that the world is in love with. It doesn't mean keeping up with the Kardashians. You ought to live holy, separate from the things of this world. The things that once held attraction for you when you were unsaved should not hold that same attraction for you today. If they do, perhaps that's your God. If you act like your hobbies are more important than God, it's because your hobbies are your God. You should consider getting saved. You ought to live holy, godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. How do we speed its coming? By being obedient to His will and work in and on and through us in this world. That's why we're here, to be salt and light. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire. The elements, he once again says that, the very elements themselves will melt in the heat. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness. So then, dear friends, since you're looking forward to all this, make every effort. I want to highlight that. Make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. Mm. How did a fisherman get to learn anything about nuclear particle physics? He served the God who created him. Paul didn't know these things because he had studied them in rabbinic school under Gamaliel. He learned these things firsthand from his encounter with God. That's where we learn the deepest truths, most life-changing and transformational things that we learn. We learn from the living God. We learn from the Word of God. And we should be in it often to find out what his marching orders are these last days. Verse 18 of Colossians 1 as we wrap up this morning's study. And he is the head of the body, the church. That's us. One church. Doesn't it say he's the head of the Baptists or the Catholics or the Presbyterians or the Calvary Chapelites? Is that a word? Calvary Chapelites? He's the head of his body, the church. In other words, you believe in Jesus Christ? We're family. We're family. I don't care where you go to church. Go to a church that feeds you, meets your needs, and blesses you with the Word of God. I don't care where you go to church. I'm just glad that you go to church. We're one body. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, first one to rise from the dead and never die again. That's what that means. So that in everything, Jesus might have supremacy. In other words, he's more important than anything else in your life. He is more important than anything else in your life. Verse 19, for God was pleased to have all, all of his fullness dwell in Jesus and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth, things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. That's why Jesus came. That's what Christmas was all about, the celebration when God decided to put on an earth suit 
look like us, identify with us, keep the law perfectly, and then die so that we wouldn't have to. That's what Jesus came to do. And can I tell you this? Someday he's coming again. Don't let him catch you napping. Don't let him catch you obsessed with stupid stuff of a transient world that you just read is going to dissolve one day in a, the mother of all nuclear explosions. When he's, <laughs> Peter's a master of understatement. Someday the very elements will melt in a ferment heat. And he describes and he goes, and there was a loud noise. Can you imagine every single atom in the whole universe exploding simultaneously? And he discreetly says, yeah, with a loud noise. Do you know there's enough atoms in the chair that you're sitting on to blow you to kingdom come from a nuclear particle physics standpoint? All of those carbon and steel and all the rest of those individual elements that make up the chair you're sitting on, if you split every atom in that chair, blow you from here right before the throne of God. Hmm. And someday every atom will dissolve. So what should you really be obsessed with these last days? Jesus. It's real simple. His Word. His plan for your life. Because everything else, including the chairs you're sitting on, are transient. Now, you may be thinking this morning, that's all fine, Pastor Jim. I didn't come to church for a lesson on nuclear particle physics. Well, that's tough. You have my sympathies, but not really. You came here because your life and mine need to change. I need to learn. I need to grow. I need to be challenged. And you say, well, Pastor Jim, that's all fine and well for you, but I, I don't believe. What is it that you don't believe? You don't believe in the God that I've just proved exists? You don't believe in the Son that I just proved came? You don't believe in nuclear particle physics? You don't believe the Word of God? Tell me what you're struggling with believing. God is real. Jesus is real. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Okay, so you're waiting for what before you make your decision for Him? You're waiting for what? What, more evidence? More proof? I'll tell you why people don't accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. They don't want to give up their sin. They don't want to give up their sin. So they choose, well, I don't believe in heaven or hell. Oh, isn't that convenient? It doesn't alter its reality, by the way. It just means that you've chosen to be stupid. You've chosen to believe a lie. The real issue is whether heaven or hell are real. That's what you should be concerned about. Not whether you have personal feelings one way or another about it. Jesus spoke about hell more than anybody else so that nobody has to go there. That's why he did that. He's not, wanting, he's not willing that any should perish. So what's keeping you from faith? What is keeping you from faith? Easter morning, we had a, a young lady come up to me afterwards in the service. And she says, well, I just have so many questions. I want to believe, but I just have so many questions. And I said, great, what are they? She said, well, uh, I, uh, uh, I, well, you know, I, I, just, I just have a lot of questions. And I said, well, first things first, why don't we accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior? And I'll bet you his word will answer 99.99% of those questions. Can we just start with that? I mean, it's kind of like playing baseball. You've got to go to first base before you go to second base and third base. So don't ask me questions about third and fourth base. How about we ask about Jesus Christ? Well, I'm not sure if he's real. And I said, you ever read an encyclopedia? They know he's real. He is real. He's a man of history. Okay, what are you going to do with that man of history? 
Well, how can I worship a dead guy? Well, good news, it's Easter, he rose from the dead. He rose from the dead. And whether you want to believe in it or not, he's coming back when you least expect it. Today would be a good day to get saved. But the fact of the matter was she was living in sin with her boyfriend, didn't want to give up her sin, and she knew she'd have to if she became a Christian. There's no, you're, not, you're not sitting on the fence this morning because there's a lack of evidence. You don't want to give up your sin. And if you're not ready, that's fine. That's between you and God. I'm not here to convince you of anything. I know why I believe, and I'm at the foundation of that which I believe is rock solid. I, don't, I need no further evidence. I already have all the evidence that I need. He changed my life. I haven't been the same since 1972. Has he changed your life? You can give him lip service. Lots of people follow Jesus for all the wrong reasons in the first century. Well, he healed so many people or he fed so many people. Well, and he did those things, but those aren't the reasons why you follow him. It's not what Jesus can do for you or what God can do for you. But are you willing to surrender to his lordship? How many of you believe that body language tells you everything you need to know? So when people sit here like this, glaring at me, can I tell you two things? Doesn't bother me. Don't care. But your body language says I'm not saved and I need Jesus. But I'm not willing to give up my pride or my sin or whatever else I'm holding on to or my drugs or my alcohol, whatever else. Think through the reality of the claims of Christ. He created us and we exist for His purposes. I don't know what purposes you're living for, but if it isn't for Jesus, you're barking up the wrong tree. Nothing makes a coon dog look more foolish than barking up the wrong tree. Animals in the other tree, dumb dog, over here. Don't be caught barking up the wrong tree. Can I tell you this in closing? God loves you. Why? I have no idea. But he loves you. He made you, and he just wants to fellowship with you. The, the, the communion that we had this morning is simply saying, I want to commune with you, Lord Jesus. Commune with me. So we do that in remembrance of him. But he's here. He's present when we celebrate communion. That's the cool part of communion. Where two or more are gathered in my name, Jesus said. <sighs> Let's stand together and close in prayer, shall we? Based on your promise, Jesus, I thank you for your presence. Now search every heart in the room. Test us. Prove us.